0: Today on am to dm we have the best guests we have ever had on the show. Truly, we have puppies. Puppies! Like puppies. Look at these, look at these little babies. I can't even oh keep it God. together. Uh, uh. Well, we'll see you on the timeline. <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And be still my heart, because those puppies—so okay, cute, so cute. Someone's can't
1: even getting a home. T- keep it together. Someone's getting a home tonight.
0: Yeah. At, at
1: the Berg residence. <laughs> I mean, I
0: sure hope. So. I w- I wish. I Lisa's truly watching, wish. like,
1: no, <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. Because you're the only one I think that can have a dog at their house. I
0: can't. I don't. Well, I can't really either, to be honest with you. So oh, we, we will, it's see. Sad. We all will right, see. All right, there all right, all right. There may be a
1: twist in the plot later Ooh, in that segment. Watch out, part. y'all. Well, we regret to read this tweet from page six to you today. Dennis Quaid, 65, confirms engagement to Laura Savoy. 26.
0: Here's a tweet from Stellar Magazine. Dennis' new fiancé is 26, the same age Meredith in the Parent Trap was in… 1998. Well now.
1: (laughs) And here's a tweet from Elaine Hendricks, who played Meredith in the movie. Watch out for those
0: twins. Get Ooh. it? Get it? That is the plot of The Parent Trap? I feel like that tweet
1: has been sitting in her drafts. For years! For a Yeah. Like she's been waiting. Like, she's like, girl, I'm going to get it one day. Because we know Dennis Quaid's tea. He's going to go for a younger woman, and I'm going to fire. And it's amazing. She was just
0: waiting. Like, when he had those twins, she was like, I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm just waiting for this to happen. But also, like,
1: art mimicking life, vice versa. It's just, sometimes this world is just too ironic.
0: It is. And, you know, like, I really didn't want to have to talk about this for all of you today. Like, I really didn't want to do this to you, but we just, we have, you know. Yeah. we have we, we to. follow, We follow what Twitter tells us. We do, so, we have yeah. to. But
1: it brings up a good question of, you know, how young is too young or how big of an age difference can be there? Because we just said, you know, they're the same age as the character was in 1998. It is now 2019, like my God. Yeah. That's 20 extra more years, 21 years. So like, did Quaid is really like, you know, reaching below. Look, it's like,
0: it's like a 40-year age differential there. You know, I am not like to judge anyone. Sure. I will say I have a fair, a decent age differential in my own relationship. Okay. Um. So maybe that puts me in a better position. <laughs> Those are rocks and glasses. I know, right. So like maybe that puts me in a better position to judge other people. I don't know. But to me, like that just, that does seem... It's far it's like a, a far one. And know? my
1: rule with this, you know, live who you, uh, love who you want to love, et cetera, et cetera. That's your business, not mine. As long as they're above the a legal cosine. limit, do it. But a, fun a consenting
0: adult, exactly. Yeah.
1: But a rule I like to live by as someone that's had uh, younger step parents. Um, I had a step parent who was 18 once. Um, is that like just make sure that your your step parent or this new partner isn't younger than your child. There was an age difference mm. between us, so it worked. But if you go below, then I'm like, ooh, girl, there's some thoughts uh, there. So yeah. that's my one rule. I think that's a good you one. You can break it. Of course, context matters. But like, don't go below the age of your child yeah. for me.
0: I think I think that is a good and very, very <laughs> fair rule to live by. And of course, we want to hear from you. What do you think is an acceptable age difference in a relationship? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2DM.
1: Uh, all right. Well, we are uh, well, no, going to move on to, the, some, yes. to some
0: other news. Here's a tweet from NPR. Justin Trudeau has won a second term as Canadian Prime Minister despite a series of recent scandals. But his party no longer has an absolute majority and will need to reach out to smaller rival parties to form a new government.
1: Well, we are going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod to discuss. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. So, Paul, why was this election cycle for Trudeau such a hard fight?
2: Well, I mean, certainly part of it was self-imposed. There was a series of, uh, you know, bad policy decisions, uh, some scandals that has really dragged down his reputation. But also, this is just part of the difficulty of governing Canada right now as a center-left party. You've got to try to balance, on the one hand, being aggressive about climate change, which which is a huge issue for many voters, while also trying to keep the uh, basically the oil industry going strong in the West, because that is just such a huge economic driver for the prairies part of the country. And they tried to sort of thread the needle of doing both at once. Didn't really work out well. They ended up, uh, the people in the West ended up voting Conservative en masse. And also they lost a lot of more liberal progressive people to a more left-wing party. And so it was a, it was a tough fight for them.
0: So what does uh, all of this tell us about the Conservative movement in Canada?
2: Conservatives have, even though they lost an election that many of them thought was winnable, uh, which is always tough, they actually have some reasons to feel good. I mean, for one thing, they managed to pick up seats. They actually won the popular vote. The problem was that their their support is so concentrated in the West, in the area we call the prairies, that they they were winning by massive, massive margins there and just not really able to pull off anywhere near that level of support throughout the West, rest of the country. But still, that's a strong base to build off of. And also, the the other key thing for them is that this fledgling a uh, party that was very nationalist, very Trumpian, if you will, uh, running on drastically reducing immigration rates, things like that. They did not get off the ground at all, couldn't even muster 2% Didn't elect a single member of parliament. Their leader couldn't even win his whole seat. So that party is pretty much stuck in traction. And that's good news for the conservatives, the mainstream conservative party, because they don't have to worry about being outflanked on their right.
1: Hmm. Well, Paul, you know, Trudeau's campaign, and we've spoken about this on the show, has been really defined this year by the blackface controversy. But how did it actually impact the campaign and voters' thoughts when they went to the polls?
2: Yeah, I think that's actually something that will certainly stick in the minds of people internationally much more than it ever had any kind of impact domestically. Uh, Polling shows that Trudeau actually did not take that much of a hit after the blackface videos and photos were released. It, it was much more the SNC-Lavalin scandal, which is something that no one outside of Canada cares about. And I won't try to get into it because it's long and complicated. But it was something that dominated the media there for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, it, it outplayed, or played out over the course of months. And that really hurt his, his image and his brand. Uh, the blackface controversy is certainly something that people are going to remember, but it doesn't seem like it ultimately made a huge difference, uh, difference in the election results.
0: So let's look forward uh, just a little bit. Um, what battles can we expect Trudeau to immediately face uh, in his next term?
2: Well, I'll, I'll highlight one internal and one external. Um, internally, you know, the Trudeau government really did something interesting. They came into power, and instead of uh, just having the, the veteran politicos in their party uh, appointing them to senior cabinet positions and all that, they they really did take a lot of gambles on younger, more inexperienced, More progressive people, putting them in high leadership positions. Two mixed results. Some of them did well. Some of them did not do well. And I think there is going to now be a real pull from the establishment part of the Liberal Party. Say, all right, we got to go back to what was working before. We need to go back to the old guard. That's something he's going to figure out internally, externally. The big thing is he's just got to stay in power for a while. You, as you said at the top there, he does not have a majority of seats. He has the most seats in the House of Commons, not a majority. So he is going to need another party to support him for a while to keep his government operational. That actually should be fine. All the parties just spent all their money. No one wants another election right now, but he's you know, he's in a much more unstable position than he was before. I would expect we'll have another Canadian election in within the next couple of years or so. Oh,
1: all right, well, Paul, here's a treat about a different topic from B.L. Moore. Veteran State Department officer, William Taylor, whose closed door testimony is set for Tuesday could be one of the most important witnesses yet. Here's
0: a tweet from John Santucci. William Taylor is the top diplomat in Ukraine who privately raised concerns about the withholding of $390 million in military aid to Ukraine and the appearance of doing so for political purposes. Um, So, Paul, what role did William Taylor have um, as Trump called the Ukrainian president?
2: So he was the ambassador to Ukraine at the time. Uh, People might recall that this is he was the one who took over after the former ambassador was uh, pretty much knifed by Rudy Giuliani, was uh, fired uh, after Giuliani ran a smear campaign against her. So uh, this is a guy, Taylor, who they brought in, uh, seen as an impartial and fair um, just longtime civil servant, longtime diplomat. Uh, And he uh, raised some serious concerns about the Trump administration, which is why the Democrats want him here testifying in Washington now. Mm-hmm.
1: So Paul, what relationship does Ambassador Asanlin have with um, uh, in the situation, and what was contained in their messages between the two men?
2: Yeah, so they were working together on the Ukraine file. And this is where we, uh, we now know because the texts have been released. Uh, that Taylor raised some very serious concerns specifically about Donald Trump withholding and this is what it all comes down to withholding military aid against Ukraine, for he believed because he, uh, Trump was seeking, dirt on Joe Biden to help Trump in the next election. Uh, he articulated that in text messages, and he is someone who uh, c- you know, clearly was not comfortable uh, with, with what was going on.
0: So let's talk a little bit more uh, about that, because Taylor said mm-hmm. that uh, there was a nightmare scenario hit for him in those messages. But um, mm-hmm. was the scenario, did it come true?
2: So he wrote that at a time that, aid was being held up by Donald Trump, his nightmare scenario was that the U.S. ultimately does not provide this aid to Ukraine, that it abandons them, uh, did not help them fortify their defenses against basically pro-Russian forces. And his nightmare scenario was that the aid never gets released, and he ends up having to resign in protest because of the administration. Now, that did not end up happening. Ultimately, uh, Congress got wind that this aid that they had appropriated was not being delivered. And uh, they started, people in his own party started to kick up a fuss, and the aid was ultimately released.
1: Mm. So, Paul, who else is testifying this week that we should be watching out for?
2: Yeah, we've got, uh, there's going to be a State Department official tomorrow. We have a Ukraine expert coming in on Saturday. It's a bit of a wonky week in that the, the schedule has been derailed because of the funeral of Elijah Cummings. He's lying in state on Thursday and Friday. So that essentially has shut down the hearings for the back part of the week.
1: All right. Well, this morning, Trump tweeted comparing the impeachment inquiry to a lynching. Paul, how is this an escalation of the rhetoric around the investigation on Trump's part? Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, we've seen Trump in his own language uh, get more and more aggressive. Uh, You know, it seems to be having somewhat of a meltdown as these impeachment inquiries, uh, inquiry continues. But it also fits with his behavior outside of rhetoric. He we know from reporting that he has been meeting with Republican officials, telling them they need to be much more aggressive and attacking the impeachment inquiry. His administration is not complying with subpoenas. It is ordering people not to testify. It seems that they have essentially decided to write off any chance of avoiding impeachment, because certainly the way they're behaving means articles of, at the very least, obstruction of justice are going to be written up. It seems that, instead, their approach that they are leaning fully into is Okay, well, they're going to impeach us anyway, so let's just do everything we can to attack the credibility of this inquiry. And that is, that is very clearly the strategy. And uh, as you can see, Trump, of course, uh, takes it extremely farther than people would expect.
1: Yeah, oh, he sure, sure does. Well, last topic before we let you go. Here's a tweet from Senator Bernie Sanders. Tulsi Gabbard has put her life on the line to defend this country. People can disagree on issues, but it is outrageous for anyone to suggest that Tulsi is a foreign asset. So, Paul, you know, back us up here on why is the situation becoming such a hot topic in D.C.? And what does this mean that Tulsi is getting so much attention from Sanders and Trump right now, who is also defending her?
2: Yeah, it started very randomly where Hillary Clinton was on a podcast with uh, David Ploufer, former uh, campaign manager. And about 35 minutes into this hour-long podcast, she, almost as an aside, mentions that both both Tulsi Gabbard is being groomed to be an asset of the Russians, and also that Jill Stein, former Green Party leader, was absolutely, you know, somehow includes with the record an asset of uh, the Russians, uh, which, of course, uh, again, this is a former presidential candidate, accusing a current presidential candidate of being a Russian asset. So, of course, this this blew up. uh, Tulsi Gabbard responded. I I, I think uh, the thing to keep in mind here is that while Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard disagree on a lot, they do agree on a sort of anti-establishment bent against the Democratic Party. And I don't think you can underestimate the hard feelings that are still there among people in Bernie's camp who feel that the DNC was sort of actively kind of waiting the game in favor of Hillary Clinton during the 2016 presidential race. So it, uh, it, I was not surprised, I guess I would say, to see Bernie Sanders coming out now in support of someone else who he sees as getting a, a rough ride from Hillary Clinton.
0: You're giving me too many flashbacks to 2016. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us.
2: All right, great talking with you. Cheers.
1: You too. Well, later on the show, Alex is down with actor Lizzie Kaplan, but up next, writer Gary Janetti is here to help me with fire tweets. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. And today, I'm joined by Gary Gennetti, the writer behind some of our favorite comedies like Family Guy, producer of Will & Grace, and now his book, Do You Mind If I Cancel? Things That Still Annoy Me. And I love that title so much because I have said that so many times. Oh, thanks. (laughs) After someone's like, can I cancel on you for this? Girl, really? Yeah, it's always the best text to receive, isn't it? Especially in Los Angeles. Do you mind if we cancel? I'm like, no, I don't ma. I've moved my whole life around. Yeah. I've already measured traffic around Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. So why are you doing this to me? Well, well, thank you for doing that book and that title. But before we get into the book, I want to play a game sure. with you. Ready? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to press the button, and then okay. you're going to mimic me. So first up, <laughs> Justin, you tweet it. Seventh grade me, when the girl I was dating flirted with the boy I actually liked. Do you relate to this?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I completely relate to that. Yes, it would be me doing that, only like getting the bathroom locked in one mm-hmm. of the stalls, afraid to come back out. I know.
1: <laughs> Well, I definitely relate to this because I dated lots of girls. They were just my girlfriends, but I was really trying to get to their boyfriends. I know, yeah. How that goes? Yeah, ditto. Yeah. Well, your turn. Okay. Hit the button.
3: Khalid, you tweeted when I ordered my iced coffee this am. The barista said, "Iced coffee season is almost over." Has she never met a gay man? Yeah, I know, <laughs> Khalid, I know. I I also order iced coffee. Like, it has to be so cold yes. for the coffee to be hot. That's, like, the first thing in L.A., mm-hmm. you know, I can always have. It's, like, 25%. maybe once a year, it's, like, it's going to be hot coffee. Yeah. And it feels like it's an event, you mm-hmm. know? Like, it's something that I should kind of, you know, actually, like, <laughs> tell people about. Like, look at me, you know. I'm very, like, I swear I'm, pr- I'm pr- still like, like, look, I know. Like, a red cup maybe <laughs> yes. around the holidays to feel like I'm participating in the season. Mm-hmm. But when I'm in New York, like, even today, yeah. it's, like, totally iced Iced. Always like it's iced. iced. I mean, I, It has to be like freezing weather for it to be. <laughs> Even then, I'll, I'll maybe still get the ice. Okay. Yeah.
1: Is your You have a drink named after you in a Starbucks. Yeah, I, I, yeah knows, I do. I've heard about. Is this an iced drink too? Because I know it's, it's an a mocha. Iced, it's,
3: it's an iced grande, iced cafe mocha mm-hmm. with um, two, only two pumps of mocha. They usually put four in. That's too much mocha. Uh, it's with almond milk. Okay. You know, almond milk is good in an iced coffee, not in a hot coffee. No whipped oh. cream because it's not Christmas or my birthday. <laughs> you know, whipped cream is an event. You don't just go around on a normal day of the week with whipped cream yeah. you drink. That's insane. You know, I so think- that's my
1: drink. And yeah. It became kind of a thing. Yeah, which is amazing that Starbucks is like, especially in Beverly Hills, because so many people go to the Starbucks in Beverly Hills. Yeah. All of them. There's like a thousand. I, know. I still have never gotten
3: a free one. Really? Can you believe? That's no, not Starbucks. even one free that's one. I know. That's not okay, Starbucks. No, yeah.
1: Um also whipped cream is for straight people, I think. That's why you can't drink it. Yeah, yeah. I Only agree. straight men are drinking whipped cream. Up yeah, there. yeah.
3: Or or it's something, yeah, it's it's a real that's a party you're going. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, look at me. Take a photo. I'm drinking whipped <laughs> <I> cream. <laughs> now take it from me and scoop it off. <laughs> actually, when they put it on by accident, they
1: try to like scoop mm-hmm. it off. I'm like, no, you can't just cash. take it off. Make a new you one. have to make,
3: yeah, make a new
1: one. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a treat for you, Hannah. Gary Gennetti is the funniest page on Instagram and Lisa Rinna commenting, Gary under every post kills me. <laughs> um, yes. Do you, that, when did that begin?
3: You know, I do the Prince George mm-hmm. on Instagram, kind of like looking at the world through his eyes. And about, I guess... Almost two years ago, over, okay. over certainly well over a year ago, Lisa Rinna just started commenting Gary in a very different tone, depending, period, exclamation point, all caps, mm-hmm. and we never kind of discussed it. She just started doing it, like, on my post, and it became kind of this thing, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of fun. I, I adore her. She has a wonderful sense of humor, yeah, she is a— fabulous person and it's but it was totally just this organic, weird, playful thing mm-hmm. that it What kind inspired of you to
1: launch the Prince Harry page? Because this is like the Prince most, George. Prince George, think Prince George. I'm thinking about his uncle.
3: Yeah. Uh,
1: it was just photos of
3: him on his first day of school, and he looked so expressive, and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm going to write a caption for this, and I just did one, and I never planned on doing an- another mm-hmm. one, and then I, a few months later, I was like, can I do two? And now, apparently, I can do... <laughs> do a whole page where I think it's- <laughs> And then I was like, and then it kind of became, you know, this whole series.
1: Yes, and it's the funniest thing on Instagram, so if you're not following, please follow the page. Thank right you, nowadays. thanks. So, so, so good. So our last tweet is, uh, is the tweet of the day, and we're going to hit it the same time. Time. Okay. You're gonna read it. You, you got right? it. Yeah. Boom. Tweet of the day comes from Denise. Brad
3: Goreski's long Instagram stories featuring Gary Gennetti eating or at Starbucks uh, are completely hilarious and endearing. A love like that, please. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks. You all
1: are so lovely on the internet. Very much like goals for relationship. Does Brad style you every day before you leave the house? I think uh. that's
3: everyone's question. Well, not today. He's ser- <laughs> certainly. He's in LA. He didn't style me today. No, not usually. You know, weirdly, you know, when we first met like 18 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I i styled him. Oh, really? He came from Canada. I was like, let's be more L.A., less Canada <laughs> now that you're here. He's going to kill me. Uh, um, and then he always had an amazing fashion sense. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, became this fashion person when he started, when he was on Bravo and, mm-hmm. and ever since then and all and, that. So occasionally now, actually, I'm going to be on Watch What Happens Live tonight. And he did style my actual outfit for that. For
1: Andy. For Andy. He was like, yeah. when you go on Andy, you have to wear this, 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 yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's smart. Totally. I wish I had in-house boyfriend and stylist. Two for one. Yeah, I know. It's nice. (laughs) Well, you also just announced your six-episode HBO Max Lifestyle docu-series that will follow you and Brad around the world. I know. What is—okay, give me the tea on this. What is the most annoying thing that you do while you travel, and what's the most annoying thing that he does while you travel? Okay. You can watch now. Yeah, well, the most annoying thing probably
3: that I do when I travel is I have to look at almost every hotel room in the hotel before I decide that I like the room we're in. <laughs> I can never be happy with the room we're in unless I know there are other rooms that I don't like, and this is the room to be in, but there will be a part of me that's always thinking, there's a better room, even if I like the room, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, this view is beautiful, the room's great. I'm like, but what if there's a better one I haven't seen? So Brad knows enough, and he's like, just are we going to other rooms? Mm-hmm. Can I open my my bag, and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, no, we're fine, we're staying. And then ten minutes later, I'll be like, hey, could we see maybe something just I with a window not. in the bathroom? <laughs> that is
1: so yeah. amazing. So I'm that sure they allow amazing. you to do that. I know, be like, but no. I can't <laughs>
3: stop myself. It's like a, it's like a sickness, and, I can, and then I'll relax when I know okay. I'm where I want to so be. you have seen all the rooms. Correct. correct. Good no. correct. If We travel exactly. together. It's going to take
1: you thirty yes. minutes. Yes. Yeah. Get yeah. Self. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump to your book. Um, you know, the book shares a lot of personal stories from you about your personal life. And yes. How you grew up. in New York. In LA in your career, what made you want to do an autobiography?
3: Well, I always wanted to do a book of like autobiographical comic essays mm-hmm. because I enjoy that kind of writing from mm-hmm. a lot of um, you know David Sedaris, David Rakoff. And when this opportunity came, I was like, I'm gonna write about incidents that still stayed with me from my childhood yeah. and young adulthood, mostly like struggling when I lived in New York and mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out how to do anything. Yeah. And I did every survival job yeah, there was in New timp- York to do. all over the place. But. Yeah, so it was kind of fun yeah. to, to do that. And then as I was writing it, it did get a little more personal mm-hmm. because I, I thought, you know, what was really going on mm-hmm. at that time underneath? So I decided to kind of open up a little bit more so, about that. And it was just as I was writing it that I kind of came to that. It wasn't like, I'm gonna really you know, be personal, and it wasn't necessarily an intention mm-hmm. going into it until I started writing.
1: Mm-hmm. And since you've published it, you know you've been getting a lot of celebration from it, especially from people like Chrissy Teigen, Lisa yeah. How has that felt to see that these personal struggles of yours are inspiring those folks out it's there?
3: It's been nice, you know, people have been terrific and people who've read it um, earlier and have responded really in, in lovely ways, which mm-hmm. has been super nice. Kelly Ripa was extraordinary. She mm-hmm. gave me this incredible shout out on her show, and she's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it was something, I think, that spoke to her about her that time for her yeah. also. So it's not just Speaking to if you're a gay man of a certain age, I think young people, women, men, everybody. Like it's it's about I think if you've ever felt kind of disconnected or a little lost in mm-hmm. your life, and it, and I was lost for quite yeah. a bit of time until I kind of clicked out of it. Yeah,
1: and I think what's so special about the book I was reading it last night as I right before going to bed again, and I was like, you know, you're sharing such tough things that we usually don't talk about the really messy stuff, the doing the things that don't may not make you look the best. Yeah, what has it been like uh, having not only? People people receive that, but for you processing that time of your life and looking forward. You know,
3: it's been kind of interesting because I don't think I could have written it if I had been, a, and you know, a different place. If I were younger, I don't think I would have been as honest. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you can kind of look back at yourself with, hopefully, you know, more of a sense of humor mm-hmm. as you get older, and yeah. and ha- and be a little easier on your younger self, mm-hmm. and kind of find my younger me yeah. a bit comical and ridiculous and mm-hmm. the delusions that he had about how he kind of thought the world worked and all those things. Yeah. So it allowed me a little bit of distance to kind of, you know. Mm-hmm e Ec- you kind of go back into that and it was interesting it's like kind of you get kind of relive it yeah. a little bit again it's weird I got to be in my 20s again yes. which was fun yeah and I think Julie Andrews
1: was on the show last week and she was talking about biographies or read her oh, quote Julie says, Andrews I know when she says oh my when you write a memoir you're reliving that life again yeah and when I was reading yours I was like what's it like to relive the fact that you were washing j- uh, toilets as a janitor for <laughs> yeah you know it wasn't bad like I, you know
3: I I never you know I was raised also you know you have to work you mm-hmm. know a job is a job There, there, there is whatever Whatever job you do, you do to the best of your ability, you know? So I never felt that I was like you know, better than any job. I wanted to do every job well, but I certainly didn't want to be in people's apartments, you know, because cle- yeah. I'd clean my own toilet. <laughs> and I was like, this is so weird. I don't clean my
4: toilet in my apartment. But I'm in some <laughs> I'm
3: strangers one. and they're sitting in the other room.
1: I'm like, this is all crazy. Yes. Like what's happened? Life is wild. How has this happened? <laughs> well thank you for sharing the stories because I think it's good for everyone to remember that, you know, it's not always glamorous. It's no, not always Starbucks in Beverly Hills. Sometimes toilets isn't. in the Upper East. No, Coast. and that's okay. <laughs> that is fine. Well thank you for being here. It's been a joy having you. Thank here. you, Zach. It's, it's been a, a pleasure. Of course. And do you mind if I cancel? this out now. More into dm is up next. Good job. Here's a tweet from NBC. Mark Zuckerberg says Russia and Iran are already working to undermine 2020 U.S. presidential election and Facebook announces new security measures.
0: Here's a tweet from Alex Kantrowitz. Facebook allows politicians to run ads with misinformation. I asked them how they define a politician, answer is anyone registered with the Federal Election Commission. Zuck says if people start registering to get around its rules, Facebook will evolve.
1: And here's a tweet from Sahil Kapoor. Mark Zuckerberg has been quietly advising Pete Buttigieg on who to hire, and some of those recommendations are now part of the Democrats' campaign staff. Joining us now is BuzzFeed News senior technology reporter Alex
5: Kantrowitz. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here in front of this amazing green screen. I think this is a new addition since I joined last. Actually, you can't, I,
0: you can't. see yourself. You are sitting in a control room right now. These are all <laughs> real screens behind me, and yes. I watch
5: television it on is a on real newsroom. Alex,
1: I don't know what you're talking about. That's right. <laughs> well, what do you know, or what do we know so far about
5: Iran and Russia's usage of Facebook for the 2020 election? Yeah, I think that. Iran and Russia uh, see what happened in the 2016 election. Some of these tactics were successful. And so it's no surprise that we're seeing it all over again here in the 2020 cycle.
0: Okay, so yesterday Facebook held a press conference about the 2020 election. Um, What did uh, they have to say about what they're doing?
5: So there's a few new updates they announced. They've been announcing updates since we found out about all the bad stuff that happened in the 2016 election. But the three specific things they spoke about yesterday was um, they are going to require candidates to have two-factor authentication. Why they didn't have that before is beyond me. Um, They're going to get better labeling ahead of false content, which, again, is also something that's smart and straightforward that should have been there for a while. And they're going to finally tell us when there's state-sponsored news media, that that news media is state-sponsored. So when you have something like Russia Today, you'll be able to know, hey, this thing was sponsored by the Russian government.
1: Wow. And just now doing this today, that's amazing. Well, it appears lately that Facebook's going to allow politicians to say anything they want as long as they are politicians. Why is that?
5: Look, I mean, maybe I'm one of the um, few people who think this is a good idea, Um, but I feel pretty weird about having Facebook step in and say politicians can say one thing and they can't say the other. And that's sort of what's going on inside Facebook. They're saying, do we want to be the censors? Do we want to put our thumb on the scale and say politicians can say this and they can't say that? Or do we want to just say, all right, we're going to allow politicians to speak as normal and then let the voters make up their minds and they've chosen the latter?
0: I feel like after the 2016 election, um, Facebook should be more on top of everything Prepare. that could uh, potentially happen. Um, do they appear to be like sincerely prepared for anything that might happen in 2020?
5: Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about the mentality inside Menlo Park. We, we go into the offices all the time. I think ahead of the 2016 election, we didn't hear much about election security at all. We heard a lot about stickers and Messenger and Facebook Live video. And I think right now, when you go into Menlo Park, you hear more about you know, threats and, and um, you know, defenses and ways to beat foreign actors. So I definitely think their head's in the right place. But, you know, one thing that I would say is that um, if there's a risk for Facebook is that they can suffer from overconfidence. Yesterday on this press call, they like they were telling us, oh, we're, we're in a much better place. You know, I think that what they should really do is, is stay humble. We haven't seen them go through a major election cycle since we've known about this stuff and come away unscathed. We already know that there were 50 campaigns, I think, that Zuckerberg was talking about that they disabled, which is good, but how many did they miss? And I think what Facebook needs to do is be humble and say, hey, look, we're, we're trying the best we can. Um, we don't have all the answers and, and bear with us, as opposed to saying, we're, we're great. You know, If they're telling themselves internally that they're in good shape here, that's a real warning sign. They need to be humble and they need to make sure that you know, they don't overlook any of their potential weaknesses like they did last cycle.
1: Hmm. So before we let you go, Alex, yesterday news broke that um, Mark Zuckerberg advised or gave recommendations for up to two staffers on the Buttigieg campaign. Walk us through what happened there and how are these men responding now?
5: Yeah, I don't think it's the biggest deal in the world. Mark Zuckerberg forwarded a resume over the Buttigieg campaign and that news broke in Bloomberg. Um, but what I will say is something that was amazing was the responses from, from both uh, Zuckerberg and Buttigieg. Zuckerberg's like, no, this is by no means an endorsement of a, the Buttigieg campaign. And for instance, he was saying, I want nothing to do with it um, in terms of picking a political candidate. And then once that happened, the Buttigieg staffers were, I know in my DMs and in other reporters' DMs, saying, no, no, we, we didn't have much association with Mark Zuckerberg at all. So I think that's the telling thing there is that Um, You know, I think, well, first of all, Zuckerberg doesn't want to pick a candidate probably for for obvious reasons, because then everybody else will be at his throat. Um, And, you know, if you're a Democratic candidate, you don't want Zuckerberg's endorsement. I think that says a lot.
0: Mm. Mm. You know, I, I still, like, can't get over the two-factor authentication <laughs> thing that you mentioned, Just Alex. That. Like, that is going to stick with me for the rest of this day that, you, that Facebook had to recommend. I, you know, I'm no tech expert, but ha- turn on two-factor authentication, people. It's a good thing. But uh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Mm. All right. Well, later on, Alex is sitting down with actor Lizzie Kaplan, but more aim to dm up next. Here's a tweet from our Eric Thomas. I checked the LinkedIn page for Serena Williams' husband, Alexis Ohanian, six feet, five inches tall, and under profession, it just said, a real one.
0: Alexis Ohanian is truly a real one because he joins us today from Capitol Hill, where he's speaking with policymakers to fight for paid family leave. Good morning.
4: Hey there, good morning.
0: All right, so tell us what you're up to in D.C. right now.
4: Sure, well, I'm down here uh, advocating for paid family leave I am with a bunch of dadvocates, uh, my fellow American dads, uh, a number of whom were able to take paternity leave uh, because of a generous move by Dove Men Plus Care to provide them with uh, $5,000 to actually be able to take time with their families for the birth of their child. Uh, Because one in five American men don't have access to paid paternity leave, and and we want to change that for all men, all women here in the U.S.
0: All right, so you mentioned the advocates, and you've talked about how you hadn't really thought that much about the issue of parental leave before you became a parent yourself. So how did that experience change you?
4: Well, look, it, it, when, when I came back to Reddit in 2014 to lead the turnaround, uh, there was not even an HR department, let alone policy. And Caitlin Holloway was our first hire there, built out the team, built out the policy, and really brought me up to speed with this idea. And, and at the time... Paid family leave was just table stakes. It is basically the minimum you need in terms of a policy to attract and retain the best talent right now. But it was only years later when I went and took the policy myself and, and took my full 16 weeks of leave that I realized what an impact it can have in the life of a family when they need it most, when they are welcoming newborn. be born. And you know, my wife had some pretty well-documented and, and very serious complications after childbirth. And... For every advantage that we have as a family in terms of wealth and access and support, um, it was still a traumatic, traumatic experience. And coming out of that, I didn't want a single employee of mine or even a single fellow American to have to just endure that without knowing they could have time to be there for their loved ones. And so that's when it really became an issue that I wanted to advocate for uh, nationwide. And That's one of the reasons why we're here on the Hill.
0: Well, you mentioned that you and Serena have been so open about her near-fatal complications, um, having uh, your child, Olympia. Um, why do you feel like it's so important to talk about?
4: Uh, well, you know, my wife has uh, has always been very outspoken about things that I think many people in her position wouldn't normally talk about, uh, to her credit. Um, she has talked about struggling with postpartum. I mean, you can see it in her tweets. Um, she has... I think, wanted to provide this window, and we have wanted to provide this window to the extent that it can show others that they can find support, that there is common ground, um, and that, frankly, there are real issues. There are real disparities in this country. And you know, in the wake of her story being told, um, we saw a huge discussion in this country about the disparity of maternal health um, between women of color and everyone else and and the drastic shortfall that exists there. Um, Those are real systemic problems. Those are real challenges in our society um, that we're not going to solve overnight, but only by talking about them, by addressing them, and by using platforms can we actually start to get a conversation going.
1: Mm. Well, you wrote in a New York Times parenting column that 76% of fathers are back to work within a week after the birth or adoption of a child. So why do you mm-hmm. think men are so reluctant to take time off of work after they become fathers, even when they have access to these leave programs?
4: I think there is a, it's a quickly eroding social stigma uh, that exists. You know, I, before I, or before we experienced the traumatic childbirth, I wanted to take my leave and do so very publicly to be a role model for other men in tech. So that other men could say, you know what, this guy's doing it, he's the founder of a multi-billion dollar company, no one's gonna accuse him of being lazy or not caring about his career, but he still knows and believes that his family is even more important. And and now it's become, I, I mean in the last two and a half years we've seen Chance, the rapper, cutting his tour dates short in order to be there for the birth of his second daughter. Right, we're seeing Daniel Hudson, a pitcher for the Washington Nationals, miss Game One of the NLCS because he wanted to be there for the birth of his third daughter. And the support that exists now online, um, rallying around these these superstars at the top of their game, these 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 dads who are electing to take advantage of the privilege they have to take that time. That's changing a mentality, and I. You know, my father took one day off uh, when I was born and and was right back to work. Um, But I think this generation of fathers now has more opportunities in part because of how technology lets us do our work more flexibly, um, but also because we are now normalizing this behavior. And it's a behavior that reflects dads just being dads, not dads babysitting, but dads having a role and responsibility in their households. And I don't think there's, I've yet to encounter a single person who thinks that dads being more involved with their families is a bad thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned celebration online, and we have a tweet here from Nicole Cliff about that topic. It says, "Prince Harry and Alexis Ohanian are my favorite. That's my wife, wife guys." So, what is it like for you to be so celebrated online for being such
4: a supportive husband? Uh, it is a very high, uh, very high praise and a very high bar. I mean, I look the. i i'm flattered by those things i try not to take them too seriously because the reality is i am far from a perfect husband i'm far from a perfect dad i have plenty of bad days um the reality is if if we can in some way model a behavior that is is good and that people take good things from it like great um but we're not i mean uh we're, we're all humans at the end of the day and so uh, by no means do I let myself get too big of a head about it because I know I still have a lot of work to do.
1: All right. You're humble and brilliant. This is amazing. Well, <laughs> the last question before you go. How can people get more involved in pushing for paid parental
4: leave? Well, uh, one easy thing you can do right now is sign up for our pledge. Uh, DoveMenPlusCare.com slash pledge. Uh, take a look. Read it. It's pretty straightforward. You don't have to be a dad to sign it. You just have to be an ally. And uh, and And then, if you are a father, I really encourage you uh, uh, not, not just spend the time, um, even if it's just on weekends, because again, let's say you don't get that option. Um, spend that time and document it and talk about it and normalize it. Normalize it around the office. Talk about the things that your kids are into. Um, let's Let's dispel this myth that we have a work life as fathers and we have a home life as fathers and the two are separate because they're not. We bring our work life home, we bring our home life to work. And the more that we can normalize dads just talking about the little league game or taking a selfie with their kid, getting an ice cream, the more we change the perception of the roles that dads, we know, are playing and and, and should continue to play a bigger and bigger one in their families' lives.
1: Well, Alexis, thank you so much for joining us today on such a busy day for you. And congratulations on being America's favorite dad. (laughs) Thanks. All right, up next, Alex is sitting down with Castle Rock star Lizzie Kaplan. Satan.
0: Here's a tweet from Kylie Hemmer. Castle Rock returns this week, and I can't wait to watch Lizzie Kaplan slay, literally and figuratively, as Annie Wilkes. Take a look.
6: Listen to me now. People in places like this try to make you one of them. So they can use you and throw you away. But I won't let them. It'll be blood on Christmas before I let them. That's the story, soup to nuts.
7: Yes.
0: Here with me now is the star of season two, Lizzie Kaplan. Welcome. Thanks. Your character is truly terrifying to me. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. well, Well, you, you've said that you were actually a fan of Castle Rock and of Misery, which is the movie yes. that is um, about her. So when you were at home watching this show and watching the movie on your own couch, did you ever imagine that you would actually be part of season
6: two? No, I, I never did, oddly. Um, I know one of the the showrunners, um, he he worked on Masters of Sex, another show that I did, and so I reached out to him uh, over email just to congratulate him on some stuff in the first season, never thinking it would lead to anything, like honestly not, and then uh, this came around. So he says that it's related, <laughs> so always email people. There you to always email people. Yeah. That's, a, that's the moral of that story. Well, you play the uh, precursor
0: to Kathy Bates' um, version of this character. So how did you uh, kind of balance making uh, her both your own character and then also incorporate some of those earlier elements?
6: Well, we always knew that our Annie Wilkes was going to be different than that Annie Wilkes. Uh, yes, she's younger, but her the circumstances that she's... Uh, like, living in are very different than that Annie Wilkes. That Annie Wilkes has been isolated for quite a few years. She lives alone in this house until she grabs Paul Sheldon, and then he's her roommate, for lack of a better (laughs) term, for a bit. But... Our Annie, she's got this teenage daughter. She's still working. She's still trying to self-medicate to keep all of her own mental health issues mm. at bay. And so it's a, just by the circumstances alone, mm. I think that our Annie will feel very different than that one. Mm.
0: So Annie Wilkes is ranked the 17th most, most iconic villain in film history Damn. On, yeah, on AFI's Heroes and Villains list. Um, so when you had to leave
6: the set for the day, like how did you let go of this <laughs> character? Well, th- this character is it was such a blast to play this woman um, to just get to have these huge unhinged moments. And also it's a, like vanity-free performance. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. I like barely wore any makeup. All my clothes were like baggy and unflattering. And <laughs> I found it all really liberating. I totally- <laughs> I can imagine, yeah, yeah. I can imagine it's that. It's really nice to not have to try to look uh, pretty every day at well, 6 a.m. Something that's interesting is that a lot of times
0: horror, the horror and thriller genre is actually used as a social allegory or like a stand-in for various kinds of social ills or social issues. Um, will we see any of that Uh, in this series.
6: There is a bit of that in this series, and I totally agree with that. Um, I didn't really think much of the horror genre, uh, literally did not think much about it uh, until recently in the past Mm. few years, and I completely agree. I think it's one of the best genres to slip in messaging about bigger issues. Uh, In our show, there is a bit of that, and I think you'll be able to figure out what it is. It's Mm. more the other storylines, less Annie stuff, but it's there. Well,
0: you're also starring in the Apple uh, TV uh, crime series, Truth Be Told. You actually played twins. So um, who are they? And I mean, what is that experience like of having to play two
6: people? It's weird. It seems like a lot of people are playing twins these days. So we should (laughs) all sit down and discuss each experience. But yeah, it's I mean, there's some things to make them look... Different, blonde, uh, one of them is blonde and one of them is brunette. Uh, They have different sort of outward styles and they're very, very different people. So in that way, it's sort of easy to find the characters, but when you're playing opposite yourself in a scene, you just have to do everything twice. Yeah, it takes twice as long. And you're kind of acting opposite a stand-in and then you switch over to the other one. You have to remember what you did and not really pay attention to what the stand-in is doing. So it's just super technical and confusing. I have no idea if it worked. (laughs) single frame of that show, but hopefully it did. Um, I hear Octavia Spencer is also in the series. I mean, it seems like it would just be incredible. She's the best. She's everything you want Octavia Spencer to be and more. Well, um, I must ask you about Mean Girls, which just
0: celebrated its uh, 15th anniversary. Yes, Lacey Chabert uh, said that she would, of course, revisit her character Gretchen if she had the opportunity. Um, how do you feel? Would you Would you play Janice again
6: if you had the opportunity? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, like, Mean Girls... I don't know. In the, the another world? Mo- in, in the movie? Mean uh, moms? Uh, something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, if everybody was on board, if the script was anywhere near as good as... As the original one was, then I don't see how I could say no to that. But I'm not, I'm not really waiting by the phone sure, to, sure for, <laughs> for the one.
0: Mean Girls reboot. I mean, it's tough because so many of the one liners have really, really uh, withstood the test of time. And there's actually, it's funny, there's a viral Twitter thread that jokes about how Janice is really the villain of Mean Girls. Really? Yeah, in retrospect, it was a joke, but people got really into this Twitter thread. Um, in I retro- yeah, that. yeah, there are oh, some God, of the tweets. That is- um, basically it's like, is she a good human being or is she not a good human being? It kind of takes
6: everybody through. She's
0: layered. And she's layered. In retrospect, you think she was maybe a little bit of a mean
6: girl? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> she was like way craftier than the other mean girls. She was like a mean girl with the, with the, the, spy plans. Yes, a spy plans. Yeah. With purpose. With purpose. Yes.
0: Yes. Well, uh, another project of yours, um, an iconic project that is also celebrating a milestone is Freaks and Geeks, which is... 20 years old, it's <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what, what about the show do you think made it, gave it such a passionate following? Uh,
6: well, it certainly didn't have a following when it was on TV. Yeah. Uh, it was canceled early. Um, I think it's just, you know, you look at all the people involved. Obviously, uh, so much of the cast has gone on to do great things. But Paul Feig, who is an incredible director, I mean, that was his baby. And his. he was really the heart of it. Um, Judd Apatow as well, mm-hmm. but I feel like Paul was those little geeky boys Mm -hmm. and that it kind of all grew from there but I can't believe that it's 20 years so crazy (laughs) it's wild it's wild Um, are there any other projects that you can tell us about that you're working on for the future Uh, well I'm hopefully going to be working on my much needed tan Uh, it's been (laughs) a long long grind we just wrapped on Castle Rock Uh, but other than that I'm just kind of going around my husband and I we made a short film so we're just kind of bouncing from festival to festival which is a fun little vacation Mm -hmm dressed up as work. Well, it's been so much
0: fun talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And you can catch season two of Castle Rock on Hulu, October 23rd. Up next, all your puppy adoption questions answered. Wow. Thank you.
1: Here's a tweet from Pet Bridge. There are many benefits of adopting from a shelter. Saves animal lives, helps break the cycle of pet overpopulation, variety of animals to choose from. Consider adopting from a shelter. Hashtag adopt, don't shop.
0: Joining us now is Erica Nors, Canine Enrichment Manager of North Shore Animal League America. Welcome. Hi oh um, So excited. Like, and you are, of course, not the only one who is joining us right no, now. No, like we how? have so many friends here. We have
7: Milo, who's this fine-looking gentleman next to me. He's probably a Jack Russell terrier mix, maybe okay. a little beagle, and he's two years old. He's so handsome. Uh, yeah, he thinks so too. <laughs> the
1: most handsome. <laughs> and who's in my lap?
7: That's Roscoe. He's our little guy. He's probably
0: about eight weeks old. So I'm thinking he's so-
7: a collie, like a collie mix. Look at
0: this, Not sure. This face. And who? And I'm holding Maya. I think that's Maya. Maya. Yeah. Well, she is so sweet. Oh yeah. yeah. She's a snuggle bunny. So um, yeah. She's eight weeks old too. Okay. So sitting here with these dogs makes me want a dog even more. <laughs> um, so what are the benefits to adopting an animal versus going to a pet shop or yeah. elsewhere to get one? Yeah. So there are
7: a few benefits. Um, you know, whenever you go to a pet store you're likely supporting a puppy mill, and we are Mm. strongly against those. So, you know, a lot of the times they don't um, offer much additional support. When you go to a shelter or a rescue, you're probably going to end up with an adoption counselor, especially when you go to North Shore Animal League America. You're going to, have somebody coach you through it. You're going to have um, support after the fact when you're home and you have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say 100% rescue, shelter is the way to go. Okay, that sounds really appealing. Yeah. I oh. mean,
0: look at these sweet little babies. I am I, like so struggling right now it's to really stay focused
1: because they are so, so adorable. Okay. So Alex is super excited. She doesn't have a dog. <laughs> but what should people like Alex who want a dog and want to adopt know first before they do it?
7: Well, do your research. Make sure you're looking into a dog that's appropriate for your lifestyle, for your family. Um, and then you could always just go and speak to an adoption counselor. Make sure that
0: they know what you want, what you're looking for, and they could totally steer you in the right direction. So talk to me more about like deciding one that's appropriate for um, my family. One of my challenges is I live in a New York City apartment. Sure. It's a small two bedroom. Um, you know, I don't want like an animal that is barking all the time perhaps. <laughs> like what are some of the things that I should be thinking about? Well, you know first
7: and foremost make sure you're looking at a breed that's maybe Mm -hmm. appropriate you know you don't want a super active dog if that's the case you're maybe not looking for like a husky or uh even a jack russell terrier you know the the more active guys um but yeah i mean just make sure you're going in there knowing what you want what you're looking for um and somebody who works in the building in the uh, rescue in the shelter at north Shore Animal league america can definitely help you get
0: there Well, One question I have is, what does the actual adoption process look like? Like, I would imagine, you know, you want these sweet animals to go to really good homes. So is there a vetting process? Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. So we have a short form, and it's reference-based.
7: So we're going to call your references, the ones that you give to us. And um, assuming that we get all the information we're looking for, like if you rent or, you know, what your uh, lifestyle is like, it's going to be a same-day adoption approval. You get to take the pet home. Um, same day. Amazing. So for the most part, it's pretty quick, pretty easy. Wow! And uh, yeah, everyone that's leaves happy. Great. I think. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: so growing up, I had a I have a lot of memories of going to shelters with my mom, and that's where we adopted our <gasps> dogs. Um, but I don't know—is it appropriate to take kids through this process? Oh,
7: we encourage it. Okay. Yeah, bring your kids, bring the family. Yeah, if everybody's there, everyone you know feels a part of the decision, and um, yeah, kids kids should totally be a part of it. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Lost. You have to understand,
0: (laughs) we're all trying, we're we're staying very composed. Some of these dogs are getting a little bit unruly. This little puppy was just uh, having a little nod. Yes, my my uh, jacket is very tasty. Yes,
6: yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, um, you know, so how do you know, like, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the process stuff, but when you actually go and meet different animals, how do you know when you just, like, click with the right one. Yeah. You know, it's so
7: funny. A lot of people come in and they're like, oh, this one chose me and I didn't choose him. Sometimes you just know. Um, but I do think that there's a lot going into it. Um, just remember your lifestyle. It's really easy to walk into a shelter, fall in love with some puppy eyes mm-hmm. and maybe make a, you know, a quick decision that might not be the best for your family or mm. your lifestyle. So just, you know. Be patient, make sure you're meeting all of the dogs, mm-hmm. you're going through the shelter and, and meeting them and giving them all a fair shot. And, um, you know, it's not a rush decision. You know, okay. this is, is going to be a commitment for 13 to 15 years. So yeah. you got to make sure you take your time with it. All
1: right. What are some common mistakes you see families make when going through this process?
7: Yeah, I think that's probably the number one is making mm-hmm. a rush decision. You know, you walk in and you're like, oh my God, it's a puppy. Mm-hmm. You know, puppies can be hard. Puppies are... Like bringing home a newborn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you got to make sure you know what you're ready for. What's your work schedule like? Are you, you know, do you have a lot of kids in your home? Is your home very high traffic? You know, so there's a lot of things that go into it, but our adoption counselors are so amazing. They can, you know, ask you all those questions, steer you in the right direction, and help you find the perfect match.
0: So, you mentioned it's like bringing home a newborn. Yeah. What, what can you do to make a puppy more comfortable when you do bring it home? Yeah, less is more. That's sort of the mantra. Not too much, too soon.
7: Try not to, um, we usually recommend not bringing all of your friends and family members over day one, usually avoiding, um... Adopting on a holiday when you're going to have a big gathering, you know, they're adjusting. It's a big jump from going from a shelter environment to a nice, quiet home. So it may not seem like a lot, but go slow with them. Be patient. Go slow. Yeah, less is more.
1: I feel like that applies to a lot of things. Pet adoption, dating, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here today and bringing these angels. They're so sweet. I'm going to I'm gonna oh, let yeah, Roscoe go run it. around.
7: Oh okay. get <laughs> it! Go get oh it! We'll share.
1: <gasps> oh my god! What's well, this? head to your local shelter to find your new furry friend. <laughs> Up next hour, AM to DM. <gasps> can
0: we play? Hello. You can play. Yeah. Uh-oh. Welcome back. We had some of the most lovable adorable guests. And I was going to say, I was actually going to say, I'm not... Just talking about Alexis Ohanian. Oh. See what I did there? <laughs> See what I did there?
1: Oh my God, the show was so cute today. Thanks I know, you it was. What a it, <clears> throat> throat>
0: throat> <clears> throat> throat> Yes. I mean, honestly, it was just really delightful uh, mm. talking to him. And I know that, you know, uh, more men are starting to take up uh, this mantle of paid uh, family which leave, fantastic. which is great. Like, I think, you know, people are, were taking steps. Like, mm-hmm. this is everybody's issue.
1: Yes. But we also should note that women have been fighting this battle for years and years and years. And no matter how handsome Alexis is, and Brilliant smart. She
0: also
1: pay, <laughs> I, pay homage to the women who also paved the way for him.
0: Indeed, but I, every time you say his name, I see you like start to get a little bit lost, <laughs> like, you know, in the moment.
1: <laughs> I do, I do. Let's move on. Let's move on all right. to other conversations like dating and age. We asked, what's the acceptable age gap in a relationship? And Paolo Matta tweeted, 10 years. You
0: okay. know, uh, my own relationship does not pass this bar, so I'm going to oh. say, you're wrong. Wow. That's all I got to say. Water got no enemy added. Acceptable to who? Long as they're both above the legal age, nobody's business at the end of the day.
1: Amen. And that part of like acceptable age, legal, those are uh, important moments to remember. Yes. Actors, Yeah.
0: Consenting adults both standing in their power.
1: Yes. Yes. Adults. Legal adults. <laughs> Brain echoed what's acceptable is that both people are consenting adults. Nothing else matters. Well, there, there we you go. go. So we got age, you got to be over whatever that age requirement is, mostly over 18. And you gotta consent. Important notes
0: here. Yeah, I mean, I think like other, of course, other things do matter about mm-hmm. the dynamic. Like you want everybody to be able to like speak up and yes. be themselves and all of those. Be things. emotionally but available. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I love, That's I love important. our like. I love our non-judgmental POV here.
1: I do. So. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. Well, thank you to our guests today, Paul McLeod, Alex Kranchowitz, Gary Janetti, Alexa Dohanan, Lizzie Kaplan, Erica Nors, and the adorable puppies from North Shore Animal League America.
0: We'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, puppies.